This morning we're going to uh, take just a, a one-week break from our study in Genesis, and uh, we don't often preach topical me- messages here at West Hills, but uh, the more I just kind of prayed on things this week, uh, the weirder that I felt um, charging forward in the Genesis series without pausing to just sort of publicly recognize this unique position we find ourselves in um, here gathering together again, uh, some of us virtually, but uh, tomorrow we will gather uh, together again for the first time in two and a half months. And um, I I, I also know that this is by no means uh, an indication that we are out of the woods with regard to COVID-19. This is not a, thank God, everything is back to normal celebratory message because there is no going back to normal. And uh, there's going to be a new normal going forward. And that's kind of exactly why I wanted to address this issue today. I I hope to encourage us from God's word that accepting our new reality uh, of a new normal going forward actually can be a really good thing if we are willing to listen to what God is trying to teach us right now through this present pandemic and crisis and grow accordingly. Winston Churchill famously said, never waste a crisis. And uh, God's word clearly teaches us that God doesn't allow crises like COVID-19 to happen just because he's bored or he fell asleep. Ephesians 1.11 assures us that God works all things according to the counsel of his will. God has a purpose for everything that happens that he sovereignly ordains here on earth, even our crises, maybe especially our crises. And therefore, nothing could be more tragic than for God's people to begin to reemerge from this pandemic three months later, having learned nothing, having grown not at all, having failed to listen for God's voice and be sanctified by him. And so I want to give you 11 biblical lessons I think we can and should learn from these past three months. This is by no means an exhaustive list, but we're trying to shorten our services a bit. And so I stopped at just 11, uh, but we'll, we'll go quick with each. I'm going to include uh, a couple passages that I think we ought to be chewing on, especially right now, and also give us 11 questions that I think we can ask and answer for ourselves to kind of assess whether we are learning and growing in the ways that God desires from this uh, pandemic. So let's jump right in. Lesson number one, we are not in control God is. We are not in control. God is. This one's pretty straightforward. Isaiah 46, verse 10, God says, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. Psalm 115, 3 says, Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. And so the lesson itself is very simple, and yet our acceptance of God's sovereignty, much less our learning to celebrate it, God, thank you for being God so that I don't have to be. That is another story sometimes, isn't it? Because we're all control freaks deep down. Uh, We walked through a few weeks back the four root idols that Tim Keller identified that we all struggle with, comfort, control, approval, and power. The reality is we all struggle with all four of those, certainly, though, with the desire for control. It's It's not... that God wants our lives to spin out of control. It's simply that he wants us to realize that they are ultimately under his sovereign control and that that is actually a really 
good thing, a truth that is worth celebrating because he is a good and loving and caring God. And so your question that goes with lesson number one is simply, have you surrendered to God's sovereignty? I mean, really surrendered? Do you trust him to be in charge? We are all about the gospel here at West Hills. The gospel is the good news that God is in charge so that you don't have to be anymore. The, the, the bad news is that you tried to be in charge. Some of us tried and fought that fight longer than others and had to learn the hard way. In our sin, we have all failed at being the Lord of our own lives, at calling the shots. But the good news is that Jesus died and rose again to offer you new life with him. With him as the Lord of your life, with him calling the shots. And he's really good at being in control because he's been doing it ever since he created the universe all those many years ago. Hebrews 1.3 says, Jesus upholds the universe by the word of his power. So friends, you can trust him. Surrender to him today. And lesson number two is related to lesson number one, is that our routines and plans just like money and sex and power and all the other intrinsically value-neutral things, our routines and plans are fine. They can be good things, but they can also be dangerous. Routines and plans have their place. We are rhythmic creatures. God designed us that way. Natural, you know, circadian rhythms and biorhythms. We are planning creatures. God gave us the power of foresight and the ability to prepare for the future for a reason. He even instructs us in his word in Proverbs 6 to consider the ant. Even ants are wise enough to store up food during the summer and fall months in uh, preparation for the winter. And so too, we must plan ahead. And yet, we must do so with the caveat of lesson number one, that God is ultimately in charge. And that means, like Proverbs 19.21 says, that many are the plans in the mind of man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. James 4.13-15 reminds us, Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we'll go into such and such town, spend a year there and trade and profit, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. And if this COVID crisis has taught us anything, it's that we ought to always qualify everything that we plan in this life with those four all-important words, if the Lord wills. Right? If the Lord wills, we're going skiing in Colorado this spring break, right? Stewart family, Rohan family. If the Lord wills, we're going to move Vacation Bible School up to the month of June this summer, right? Allie, Keaton, and, and all our kids in kids' ministry joining us from home this morning. We make plans, and we should. We have to make plans, and yet we also have to hold on to our plans loosely because we recognize that it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. And we also recognize that when it comes to our routines and our plans, that because of our sin, our desire to be in control and our failure to submit to God's will, that we have a unique tendency to go wrong in one of three ways. And so if you have your digital bulletins at home, write these down there. 
uh, three ways we can go wrong in our plans and our routines. We can, number one, become blinded to things that are in our routines and plans that shouldn't be. Number two, we become blinded to things not in our routines or plans that should be. And number three, there may be things that are rightfully part of our routines and plans, but we've recently realized through this crisis that we were overly dependent on them. So let me just give you a practical example of each of those three categories. Number one, stuff that's in our routines and plans that shouldn't be. How many of you have realized in the past three months been convicted by just how much time you were spending, dare I say wasting, in front of the TV watching sports? I mean, unless you have in your desperation and your addiction turned to following Korean baseball or international cornhole, I suspect that many of us have watched far fewer sports here recently, and I bet that some of you have been amazed, positively amazed, at all the better ways that you have found to fill that time instead. You're happier because you're not spending four hours every other night screaming at the Cardinals. Instead, you're outside playing your own game of catch with your kids. And that, that would be a great lesson to carry with us after this pandemic. Number two, things not in our routines and plans that should be. How about family meals, right? How many of us, having been freed from the tyranny of youth sports, have created a new rhythm of actually sitting down at the dinner table together as a family every single night for the past three months now? That's a beautiful thing. Right? Why stop that when the quarantine gets lifted? How about family worship? I'm not going to sit here and say that I want to uh, kill West Hills kids and fire Miss Allie, but what if we use this opportunity to create new patterns of involving our older elementary and our middle and high school students in the life of the corporate church? Kids, just so you know, you are always welcome with us here at Big Church, right? Even when we return back to West Hills kids, whenever that might be. Stay for both services and get the best of both worlds, right? Your service and our big service. And finally, number three, things that were rightfully part of our routines and plans, but we were admittedly overly dependent on them. Maybe your commute to work, right? That nice, neat separation of work and life and home life. Or your daily trip to Starbucks. Or in-person worship with the gathered church on Sundays, We'll get to that in a minute. I mean, these are all good things, but how dependent have we realized that we were on them? Is your world totally thrown off when things don't work according to your plan, according to your routine? And so that's our question for for lesson number two is, how do your routines and plans need to change and adapt coming out of this pandemic? Spend some significant time Uh, thinking and praying about that, discussing that uh, as a family coming out of this crisis. Lesson number three, crises can be God's judgment and there's never a bad time to repent. I heard a pastor friend uh, preach a few weeks ago that this pandemic is not God's way of punishing us, that God is kind and loving and so we shouldn't read too much into why all of this is happening. The problem with that reasoning is that God is also holy and just, equally so. And and while, yes, there are times 
in Scripture, when God in his mercy does not deal with us according to our iniquities, Psalm 103, verse 10, it is abundantly clear, biblically, that there are other times when God, desiring to show his justice, says, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. That's Romans 12, verse 19. That's in the New Testament, friends. That's not an Old Testament versus New Testament issue. God is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. You can look especially into the, the Old Testament prophets and see this, find example after example of God sending crises, plagues, and pestilences, and famines, and serpents, and floods, all as divine justice against human sin. Right? 2 Chronicles 7 Verses 19 through 22, if you turn aside and forsake my statutes, God promises, I will pluck you up from my land that I've given you. I will cast you out of my sight. I will bring all this disaster upon you. But God still reprimands us today. New Testament, under the new covenant, Hebrews 12, verses 5 and 6, my son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. Now, I think we've got to be careful trying to definitively connect the dots. Like when televangelist Jerry uh, Falwell pronounced that September 11th was God's judgment against America for the ACLU. I mean, we don't know exactly why God is allowing COVID-19 to wreak havoc or any other crisis you know, in our country and around the world. But biblically, I don't think we can rule out the possibility that this crisis that we find ourselves in right now is an expression of God's wrath against sin. And there's certainly no shortage of sin for him to be judging and wrathful of. I mean, sin not just in the world, but in here. The Bible says judgment begins in the house of the Lord, right, with us. And is worth God's condemnation and wrath. And there's never a bad reason for us, God's people, to confess our sin and even confess uh, intercessorily the sins of our nation, of our world, and repent and turn back to the Lord. Remember earlier in verse 14 of 2 Chronicles 7, God promises that when I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain or command the locusts to devour the land or send pestilence among my people, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear them from heaven and I will forgive their sin and heal their land. And so I ask you, brothers and sisters, Question number three, have you humbled yourself? Are you praying? Are you seeking God's face, confessing, repenting? Are we, the church, interceding on behalf of our world like Moses did for the Israelites, for sins they did, they, our world doesn't even know they're guilty of? Racism, rioting, abortion, greed, idolatry. God, in your mercy, hear our prayers. Are we praying, confessing, and repenting? Lesson number four that we learn from this present crisis is that trials are always meant to build our faith and our empathy. 
God doesn't always tell us why bad things happen, but he does assure us of how he wants to use them in our lives for our good and our growth. It is to build our faith, our love for him, first and foremost, but also our capacity for empathy, for loving and caring for others, which also happen to be the two greatest commandments. Love God, love others. First, our faith. James 1, 2 through 4, count it joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. 1 Peter 1, 7, God sends trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, uh, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise. And 2 Corinthians 12, verses 8 through 10, where Paul writes, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this thorn in my flesh, that it should leave me. But God said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in your weakness. God gets glory, friends, from proving that his strength is greater than our weakness, that he is able to sustain us and bring us through even the toughest of trials. And then Paul goes on to say, in chapter 1, verses 3 through 5 of 2 Corinthians, that the God of all comfort comforts us in all our afflictions so that we may be able to comfort others who are in any affliction with the comfort that we ourselves have been comforted with by God. Some of us who have felt cooped up and isolated for the past three months are just getting a glimpse of and, and developing compassion for that elderly neighbor across the street who lives in isolation all the time, always confined to her, her own house. We, we fear losing our jobs during this recession, and it makes us more empathetic towards those who actually have, right? And so we, we give and, and we bless them in our empathy. May we comfort others with the same comfort God has shown us. And so that's question number four. Have you grown these past three months in both your reliance on God, faith, and your care and concern for others, empathy. And lesson number five builds off lesson number four, which is that faith and empathy then should overcome our fear and our selfishness, respectively. The opposites of faith and empathy are fear and selfishness, respectively. And so God wants to use our sanctification, our growth and godliness to kill our sin. He declares in Isaiah 41.10, fear not. That's a command. Do not fear, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous hand. And our increasing in faith in him should kill our fear. Faith kills fear. And so that we can then confidently declare like David does in Psalm 23, 4, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Similarly, our growth in empathy will kill our selfishness. We read last week in Philippians 2, verses 3 through 4, in the context of how we use our money, but this exhortation applies equally to all aspects of life. Do nothing Paul says, from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not to his own interest only, but also to the interest of others. And so I ask you with question number five, very pointedly, has this crisis made you more afraid and selfish 
or more trusting and empathetic? Are you the person who is hoarding all the toilet paper? Or are you the person asking, how can I serve others through this crisis? Right? Who are suffering even worse than I am. It's fear versus faith. And I, I can just think of this powerful example in my mind of the difference between some of my unbelieving family members who don't know the Lord, they're in their 80s or 90s, who are terrified of this virus because they know it would be a death sentence for them, and that's terrifying for them. And then I contrast that with the response of some of our elderly saints here at West Hills who are the ones beating down the doors, calling every week, when are we resuming church? Right? Because they know that the worst that happens, they're in that at-risk category, but the worst that happens to them is they get this thing and they die and they get to go be with the Lord in heaven. Right? Friends, which of those 90-year-olds do you want to be when you grow up? I, I just speak for myself. I want to be the June Nystrom. I want to be the, 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 the Bob and Barbara Underwood. I want to be the, the J.R. and Sandy Smith. I, I want to be that kind of a 90-year-old who lives in faith, not in fear. Are you desperately clinging in fear to, to the little bit of life that you have left, or do you want to be the one who's looking forward in faith to the beautiful promise of eternal life that you have to come? Lesson number six, we need each other, but we need God more. We need each other, but we need God more. God made us relational. He made us in his image. The first thing in the created order, you will remember from Genesis chapter 2, that was called not good, was that man was alone, in verse 18. And I shouldn't have to convince any of you coming out of this pandemic and crisis, that uh, coming out of the quarantine at least, that that is true. Uh, That should be self-evident, just how much we need each other, how relational we are, created uh, for community with others, even us introverts, right, who used to show up late and sneak out early from church so we didn't have to talk to anyone. I suspect we're going to have a lot of introverts uh, in church tomorrow out in in the field with us here who are, are, you know, we're going to have to drag off the the property out of the parking lot eventually because there's going to be like people, finally, people again, right? Because we're created for human connection and we really do need each other in relationship. And yet, this crisis should remind us that we need God even more. For some of us, this crisis may have exposed even the idolatry of our human relationships, that we substitute human relationships in the place of a relationship with God, or at least the centrality of our relationship with God. Remember, idolatry is when a good thing becomes the ultimate thing. What happens when we can't be with other people in person? Right? In the way that God meant for us to be. Will God be enough for us for two, three plus months of quarantine when we're temporarily stuck without each other in person? Jesus said, I am the true vine. You are the branches. Abide in me he says, not your church, not your friends, not your family, not even the most uh, intimate, close relationships, your spouses, right? They were never intended to be your most essential source of life. Jesus is the vine. 
He's the source of life. We've got to be connected to him. When relationships fail us in life, and they will, or they, they're not available because of stay-at-home orders, is God going to be enough for us? Question number six, is your faith appropriately both communal and personal? Finding that balance of needing others but needing God more. Lesson number seven is that the church is not a building, it is a gathered people. Church isn't a building, it's a gathered people. Church is more than a Sunday morning experience, but it is not less than it. Let me say that again. Church is more than Sunday morning, but it's not less than it. Let's take both sides of those two truths. Church is more than a building. It's not an event. It's not a program. It's not a service. Church is not a place you go to. It is a community you are a part of, you belong to. Thank God for that reminder during this pandemic. And yet, it's not enough to say that the church is not a building. It's a people because the biblical truth is that the church is always a gathered people, God's gathered people. Hebrews 10.25 exhorts us not to neglect to meet together. Jesus said in one of only two places in the whole New Testament where Jesus directly references the church, he says that where two or more are gathered in my name, there I am among them. All of the New Testament metaphors for the church attest to the importance of the gathered church. 1 Corinthians 12, the body, you know what, the horror of a dismembered body 1 Peter 2, a spiritual house, a temple, a bunch of bricks laying all over the place is not a house. We are a gathered people, and there are essential ways in which our faith really is a corporate faith. In fact, one could, and many pastors out there have argued that what we have been doing, this right, even that we're doing this morning with you all doing the virtual stream, is not church. Some argue that. Because church is, by definition, a gathered people. Is virtually joining together in one heart and mind at the same time but not in the same place on Sunday mornings, is that church? That's a tough question. I don't, an existential question for the church. I don't pretend to have all the answers to that, but I will simply ask you question number seven. Is church for you more than but not less than a Sunday morning experience? Lesson number eight is that people are not human doings, we are human beings. In much the same way that church isn't something we do, but rather something we are, we should have learned through this crisis that as individuals, we are not just the sum total of our accomplishments and the things that we can do, but rather we are human beings. This quarantine has probably been especially hard, taking its toll on those of us who are driven, high energy, go, 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 do, do, do kind of people, performance-minded, who thrive on productivity. Right? There's so much we're used to getting done that we've been prevented from being able to accomplish these past three months. Right? And so some of us struggle to just simply sit still and be Exodus 3.14, God said to Moses, his name, Yahweh, I am who I am, not I do what I do. God is the ground of being, 
not doing. And so when God says in Genesis 1.26, let us make man in our image, that's whose image we're made in. We're not human doings. We are human beings. You may feel more worthwhile on those days when you're able to fill up your to-do list and systematically, proudly get everything checked off, but that's just because you don't see yourself the way God does. You don't see yourself, your life, as inherently valuable, not because of what you've done, but because of who you are. Imagine that, that God loves you just as much on your worst day as he does on your most productive day. That's, that's the good news of the gospel, friends. Question number eight is, do we see ourselves that way? Do we see others that way as more than just the sum total of their achievements? Do you always have to be going and doing? Listen, productivity, another good thing, but like anything else, can become an idol. Are we simply able to be still and know that he is God? Has God taught us the importance of Sabbath rest during this crisis. Lesson number nine is that physical death is bad. Spiritual death is infinitely worse. Physical death is bad. Spiritual spiritual death is infinitely worse. Think back with me to Genesis chapters two and three. On the day that Adam and Eve ate of the forbidden fruit, they were supposed to die. And they were cast out of the garden but they didn't die physically. So what are we to make of that? The truth is that their death was a far more severe one, a spiritual separation from God, the source of all life. God says in Ezekiel 33:11, as I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. God hates death, physical death, and yet As much as he hates physical death, how much more so eternal, spiritual death? Isaiah 59, 2, God says your sins make a separation between you and your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. And this imminent threat during COVID-19, this in-our-faceness of physical death, has become so real to all of us these past three months. But we should ask ourselves, is the severity of spiritual death just as real and even more severe and urgent to us? Let me ask you, question number nine, what do you fear most in life? And what does your greatest fear say about your theology? I'd just be honest, for me, my worst fear, the worst thing imaginable in the world, is losing one of my kids. But parents, I want to ask you, what is worse, your fear of losing your four-year-old, your 14-year-old, your 24-year-old, or that child living to be 94, 104, and never repenting of their sin and coming to know Jesus as their Lord and Savior. And no matter how many years God gives them their physical life on this earth, dying and being spiritually separated from God for all eternity. Is that fear as great, infinitely greater 
more serious than the horror of physical death? Is that fear not just palpable for us, for our own kids, right? but for our lost loved ones and neighbors and for even strangers? Is that fear real to us? If it is, then we will learn lesson number 10, which is that God wants to use his church to go and he will push us if necessary. God wants us to go and he'll push us if he has to. Acts chapter 8, God used a great persecution to scatter the church from Jerusalem into Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth to begin his mission of sending witnesses to every corner of the world. Again, I don't claim at all to know the mind of God, right? But one cannot help but wonder if part of God's purposes in our current crisis is to wake the church up from our slumber, to get us out of our comfort zones, to get us off the couch, and to get us out into our mission fields. And some of you at home are thinking, wait a minute, I'm watching this from my couch. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm stuck on my couch. I'm confined in my home still. How is a stay-at-home order God's way of sending me? And I will say, once upon a time, it wouldn't have been, right? Once upon a time, this would have necessarily been an isolating experience these three months for us. But in the days of text messaging, of FaceTime, of Zoom, of social media, in some ways, with more time at, at home, there's more time, more opportunity to stay connected than ever before. I've heard so many encouraging stories from you all. And I've got my own examples, too, of people that you had all but lost touch with, who God used this pandemic to help reconnect you with them and even gave you an opportunity to begin to witness to them. I, I just, again, speak personally for my own life group. Evangelism, through the last three months, up like a thousand percent from what it was for probably three years in our life group before this. God is blessing us with all sorts of unique opportunities to bear witness to him as people are asking more than ever now questions of life and death and the meaning of suffering and these kinds of things that people are wrestling with, the church has the answers. Now more than ever, we have to go and be used by him. Will we, question number 10, be like the prophet Isaiah who said, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Will we be like Isaiah and say, here I am, Lord, send me. And finally, and related to that, lesson number 11, if the church closes its doors, our community should notice. This, this, this question for me, in some ways, uh, was one of the ones that drove me to really feel the weight of needing to even preach this sermon and address some of these topics uh, this week. I read an article uh, a week or two ago, just basically asking that question for pastors. If your church had to close its doors in the wake of, of this pandemic, would your community notice? Friends, God's plan from the beginning, we've just recently studied it in our Genesis series, was always to call unto himself a people through Abram for what purpose? Genesis 12, 3, it was so that in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Friends, we are that people. Paul says in the New Testament 
Jew or Gentile, we have now both been adopted into God's family through faith. We are now the true offspring of Abraham through whom God wants to bless and redeem the world. And so Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, you are the light of the world, a city on a hill. People don't light a lamp and then put it under a basket. You put it on a stand and it gives light to all those in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who's in heaven. Friends, do we realize that the church is God's plan A for reaching the world with the good, saving news of Jesus Christ and that he does not have a plan B? We are his plan. Do we recognize it? And do we let that recognition motivate us to get about our Father's business that he's left us here on earth with? Question 11. If West Hills closed its doors tomorrow, would town and country, would West County, would the greater St. Louis area, Missouri, America, the world, would they notice? Would our world be the worse for it? I want to say yes, but I know we can do more. We can do more together, and so let us resolve coming out of this pandemic to be the kind of church that strives and prays and toils to be a blessing to a world in such desperate need. Amen. Let's pray.